0: If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 16 once again. We've been in this series in Romans for a little over a year now, a series that I would describe as cruising at a high altitude in a big passenger plane. We took off on April 12th of last year, and there are several reasons why that analogy fits For one, this letter describes to us a higher way of living. It takes us far above the pettiness and self-centeredness of this world. It doesn't just provide a better way to live, but God provides for us through Jesus a higher way to live. This is not just an improved way of life. It is an altogether new one. During our flight, we've come down and made some stops along the way. There were some Sundays where I would bring something other than Romans, and some weeks where Danny would come and and share what the Lord had laid on his heart. And along the way, we've had some hop off of the plane, but we've had even more get on. There are some of you who have joined us uh, long after we started the series Um, We ran into some pretty strong turbulence in chapters 9 and 10 that uh, some people weren't comfortable with, and they grabbed a parachute and got off as quickly as they could. (laughs) But don't think in this analogy that I have been the pilot of this plane. The Holy Spirit is the one that has been in control, and my role has really been uh, the, the tour guide. I've just been pointing out the magnificent sights that we see along the way things out the window that that we fly over. And after flying for over a year, we are now making our final pr- approach for landing. Last Sunday, we began our descent, and today can be viewed as the landing gear coming down, and then next week, we will finally touch down and land the plane. In our final approach, we're looking at the last three verses of Romans. And last week, we learned why Paul chose to describe God as the one who strengthens you. Today we're going to look at another incredible aspect of the God we worship and hopefully leave here with even more reason to worship him. So let's stand together and read this final sentence once again. Romans 16, starting in verse 25, Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever amen let's pray Lord we are so thankful for your word God I pray that this morning you would reveal something about yourself to us that changes us God that does make us love you even more God I pray that what you intend for us this morning would come to pass and we would know that we had an encounter with you in Jesus name we pray amen Out of the thousands of ways that Paul could have described God at the end of his letter, he specifically chooses three things to say about him. In verse 25, he says that he is the one who establishes or strengthens you. In verse 26, he says that he is eternal. And in verse 27, he says that he is the only wise God. This morning, we are going to gaze upon God's wisdom Let's start off first with a definition of it. If if you look up the word wisdom in the dictionary, you'll see several different uh, definitions, but they all pretty much say the same thing. And so I've sort of combined those along with how it applies to God to come up with a definition for us to work from today. And that's the first thing for those of you who are following along in the notes, wisdom is knowing what the greatest goal is in any situation and what the best way is to achieve it and be careful not to confuse wisdom with knowledge those are two different things although they do overlap knowledge is having the correct information wisdom is knowing what to do with that information. Just because someone has a lot of knowledge does not necessarily mean that they are wise. There there are many brilliant fools in the world. Stephen Hawking, some of you may have seen him on TV or heard of him, he possesses one of the greatest minds the world has ever known in the field of physics and cosmology and quantum mechanics. But his personal life and some of the things that he has said in in public proves that the extreme physical handicap that he suffers from is only matched by his extreme lack of wisdom. And the only reason I would say something like that in a public setting is because he makes many foolish comments in a public setting and many people just assume that because he is so intelligent he must be speaking with wisdom. But he proves that those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand all the time. But we're talking about God's wisdom here, not ours. And the difference is that God always knows what the best goal is in every situation. And he always has total and perfect knowledge of billions and billions of relevant facts that enable him to know the best way to achieve that goal. When Paul calls God the only wise God, he doesn't mean that there are other gods and he is the only wise one. I mean, based on other things that Paul has said in other letters, I mean, he he makes it clear that he is the only God. And so a more accurate way of saying this would be the one and only God who is infinitely wise. Paul is reiterating what he said about God at the end of chapter 11. Let's go back there for a minute and look at that again. It's another doxology like he is doing here at the end of chapter 16. Starting in verse 33, he said this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The wisdom of God is so deep that his judgments are unsearchable. So deep that his ways cannot be fathomed. So deep that no one is able to counsel him about anything. We can't go, God, can I make a suggestion here? You know, I've been watching the way that you operate, and have you ever thought about this? And God would go, seriously? You can't even figure out your own life. You're going to counsel me on how I should govern The wisdom of God is so deep and so big that it is impossible for him to increase in wisdom. For God to gain wisdom means that something would have to go into his mind that hasn't already come from his mind. But Romans 11.36 says emphatically that this does not happen. It says, "...for from him and through him and to him are all things." If all things are from him, then there is no wisdom that exists in the universe that isn't already his. It hurts our brain to even try to understand his. And so looking at our definition of wisdom again, God always knows the best goal in every situation and the perfect way to achieve it. What I want to point out this morning is the incredible way that this relates to the gospel. Last week we looked at what Paul meant in verses 25 and 26 when he referred to the gospel as the secret to the great mystery that was kept hidden in ages past but has now been revealed to us. And we saw that the mystery was how to solve mankind's greatest problem, our sin and alienation from God. But what actually caused that problem was a much deeper root issue. Sin and alienation from God were really symptoms of something deeper. The deeper root issue, beginning with Adam and Eve, has been the belittlement of God and the exaltation of us. When we belittle God and exalt ourselves, it results in sin and alienation from him. When the serpent approached Eve and asked her what God told them, she said, He told us that we could eat from any tree in the garden except for the one in the very center of it. If we eat from that one, we will die. And Satan said, Surely you will not die. The only reason that God told you you couldn't eat from that is because he knows that if you did eat from it, you would become like him. What a temptation. You can be like God. And they believed the lie and tried to put themselves in God's place. No longer was he the center of their lives. They were now the center of their lives. He was no longer who they relied on for everything. They now relied on and looked to themselves for their own survival. They no longer looked to him for their identity. They tried to get it through other sources now. Now. With that one act of rebellion, they belittled the God of the universe and exalted themselves. And this has been the root of mankind's greatest problem ever since. And so the next point in your notes, mankind's greatest problem, the belittlement of God and the exaltation of self. This is still the root of every problem in the world today. And it is a temptation that you and I must fight every day. Every day we are still constantly haunted with the lie, you can be like God. We are tempted to belittle him and exalt us. And there are many ways that we can do that. This morning I've included three of the main ways that we belittle God in your notes For the first one, Psalm 24, 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and everything in it. There is not one square inch of anything that exists in this universe that God doesn't rightly lay claim to. It's all his. And so we belittle his great name when we claim God's stuff as our own. Everything that we have is given by God for God. But a lot of times we treat everything we have as if it was given by us for us. And when we do that, we belittle him and exalt ourselves. The second way. We just looked at Romans 11.34 that says, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Romans 9.20 says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me this way, will it? And so another way that we belittle him is by thinking that our way is better than his. And for the third one, Colossians 1, 16 through 18 says, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together and then it says so that he himself will come to have first place in everything the third way we belittle him is by making life all about us instead of him this is the great blasphemy of the universe everything god does he does it to display his glory Everything that exists in the universe exists to display his glory. Even hell points to this and shows us how seriously God takes the glory of his name. Its horrors tell us how big and mighty and wonderful. How worthy of worship and glory must God be that hell is the just response to the belittlement of his name. If total separation from God and eternal torment is the just and right response to the belittlement of his name, then his name must be awfully great. The only reason that we would think that a loving God just would not condemn someone to that kind of a fate would be because we just don't believe that his name is that big of a deal. But it's a huge deal. The horrors of hell are an echo of the infinite worth of God. Today I want us to look at God's wisdom And solving mankind's greatest problem. What was the problem? The little belittlement of God and exaltation of self. Remember our definition of wisdom. Knowing what the greatest goal is in any situation and the best way to achieve it. If this was mankind's greatest problem, then what did God see as the greatest goal? Next thing in your notes. The greatest goal is the exact opposite. The humility of man and the glory of God. This is the goal that needed to be achieved in order to rectify everything that went wrong in the garden. Psalm 34:12 says my soul will make its boast in the Lord the humble will hear it and rejoice. Psalm 37:11 but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Matthew 23:12 whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. James 4.6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4.10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And you may say, well, there, there's verses there that talk about us being exalted. Yeah, you're right. But there is a tremendous difference between God exalting you and you exalting yourself. And so we can see here all throughout the Bible that humility is a valuable commodity in the kingdom of God. And I'm sure that we could probably come up with many ways of achieving that goal. We could think of several ways to make someone humble. But our ways of doing that usually aren't very good. And they more times than not result in someone saying something like, you absolutely humiliated me today. But that's embarrassment. Embarrassment is not the same thing as humility. And there are several ways that God could have chosen to humble us. And we find several of them in the Old Testament. He could have done to us, humbled us the way that he did King Nebuchadnezzar when he took away his sovereignty as ruler over Babylon, expelled him out into the wilderness where he lost his mind and ended up eating grass like a cow. That would humble the proudest one. He could have done to us what he did to the Israelites when he let them go hungry in the wilderness before giving them manna. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know. He could have humbled us the way that he did the Edomites in the book of Obadiah. In chapter 1 verse 3 he says to them, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. And then he goes on to tell them how he was going to rectify that and bring them to humility. And how did he do it? He brought disaster and destruction on them. That accomplished the goal pretty quick. All through the Old Testament, we find examples of different ways that God humbled someone who was acting just a little too arrogant. And they all worked. And so in order to fix our greatest problem... And achieve the goal of our humility in his glory, he could have reverted to any one of those tactics that did work in the past. But although those may have been good ways, God knew in his infinite wisdom that none of those were the best way. What would be the best way to humble us while at the same time magnifying his glory? Well, it was something that none of us would have ever thought of in a million years. Something that from our perspective doesn't look very wise at all. I mean, we can look at all the ways that he humbled folks in the Old Testament and go, Yeah, that makes sense. That is a great way to do it. You go, God. But the best way he chose to do it wasn't anything like that. I mean, it was a peasant born to a virgin in a dirty stall. A brief three-year ministry. The scandalous execution of a falsely accused criminal who hung on a cross, naked in public, in complete humiliation, just to rise from the dead three days later and leave behind a band of imperfect followers. That, God says, was infinite wisdom. That was the perfect way to accomplish the greatest goal. It could not have been done any better. The greatest goal was the humility of man and the glory of God. Last point, the best way to achieve that goal, the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of Romans is unfolding this, but I want us to look at a particular text where Paul connects the gospel directly to the wisdom of God. If you're still in Romans 16, then it should be the next page over. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at this, starting in verse 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. In other words, God would not allow salvation to come through human intellect, wisdom, or knowledge. Like I pointed out last week, it was something that didn't really make sense at us to all. From a human standpoint, and here Paul Paul calls the gospel God's way of achieving the greatest goal utter foolishness. It's foolishness in the eyes of the world. Verse twenty two. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In his infinite wisdom, God chose a way that would destroy the Jewish demand for signs and the Gentile demand for human wisdom. He chose to save sinners through the human foolishness of a crucified Savior. Verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God chose to display his infinite wisdom and strength in the form of human foolishness and weakness. Now, why does he choose to do it this way? Why is this the wisest way to fix mankind's greatest problem? Because it's the perfect way to achieve the greatest goal which you're going to see when we read on in just a second. As I said last week, the solution to fixing our problem was never about what we had to do. Even though we were the ones that were broken, and we were the ones that were responsible for our brokenness, God in his infinite mercy did not leave it to us to try to figure out how to fix it. That is grace right there. It was always about what God had to do. He did for us what we could never do, earn, or deserve on our own. God chose us. He purchased us. He called us in such a way that it would strip every possible way of us being able to boast in ourselves or take credit for our salvation. Jump down to verse 30. It says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is the greatest goal of salvation. That is what infinite wisdom was aiming for. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God does everything involved in our salvation. You say, well, how would you get saved? Well, I know God did it. Well, yeah, but when I was seven, I went, no, God did it. But you see, someone told me to repeat that God did it. Everything that you did in your salvation was a response to, to what he had already initiated in you. He did it. God does everything involved in our salvation. Why? To strip us of any ability to boast in ourselves, and he replaces it with boasting solely in him. Through the life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ man is humbled and God is glorified to the only wise God be glory forever amen now before I wrap this up I want to leave you with something that you can take with you this is a part that you can apply to everyday life this is what it means not just for our salvation but what it means for daily living Like I said earlier, every day you and I still fight the temptation to belittle God and exalt ourselves. To essentially take God's place. And everything that God does is to help us with that. And this all shows us another great reason why we can trust him. When things happen in our life, especially those things that we would define as bad things... Heartache, struggle, suffering, pain. We often question God, sometimes even get mad at him for it. For those of you who are going through some of that right now, and you're wondering why, would God allow something like this? God, what in the world could you possibly be doing with this? Just know this. That God, in his infinite wisdom, is executing the best possible way of achieving his goal, perfect goal, in you. Namely, your humility in his glory. And yes, there are hundreds of ways that you could think of that might achieve that. And you're probably even wishing that he would have chosen some other way than this one. But remember, he is the only wise God. Even though there may have been other ways of doing it, even good ways of doing it, in his infinite wisdom, God has chosen the best way. Folks, there is great security in knowing that. All he wants us to do Is trust his wisdom? Let's pray. God, I believe that you have accomplished part of your goal of our humility just by revealing a small fraction of your wisdom this morning. Lord, when we see you for who you are, we cannot help but to be humbled. And your word shows us that that is a great place to be. So Lord, I first of all want to lift up those in this building right now who are going through some difficulty and wondering where you are in it. Wondering how in the world you could allow this to happen. Lord, I pray that you would speak through the confusion and heartache and resentment Let them see that you are, God, that you are displaying your wisdom, that your goal for them is great, that it is perfect, and you are working out the best possible way of achieving that goal. So, Lord, I pray that they would just be able to trust you. God, I ask that you would take us all into higher levels of being able to walk in complete trust in you. God, there is no greater place to be. Lord, let us be so in awe and staggered by your glory that when the temptation comes to belittle you, we will have no problem just brushing it aside Lord I know you desire to do a work in individual hearts in this place so Lord we submit ourselves to you to do that Lord continue to glorify yourself in Jesus name I pray, Amen